Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. If you want to get out your Bibles and follow along this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, tonight, I want to encourage you to be back. We're going to be reading through 150 Psalms. Doesn't that sound like fun? No, not really. Um, that would be a lot. But we are going to do an overview of the Psalms tonight, and I encourage you to be here. I've, I found great encouragement in that study, and I'm excited about it. So if you're able to make it tonight, uh, I promise it'll be worth it. Uh, our overviews have been good. We've gone through all the exile period, and now we're about to enter into some wisdom literature. And we're going to try to get an overview of the book, looking at the whole book in uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, is very fruitful for us to help prepare us for those kind of studies in our own personal lives. So I hope you can make it out with us if you're available. Um, we're, we've been studying through the book of Matthew. We kind of took a break last week. We're going to get back into it this week. And we've been seeing how Matthew reveals to us that Jesus is the king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the, the Messiah, the one who God always had planned to bring to fulfill all of his promises. And that's what Jesus is ultimately going to be in the book of Matthew. And Matthew's trying to point to that throughout the book. Last time we saw how John the Baptist was preparing the way for him to come, just as God had foretold. God would send a messenger before he comes to prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. And, and that's very much what John did as he came onto the scene preaching, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, letting people know that there is fire and judgment coming for those who refuse to repent and to listen to the message of God and, and to his messenger and, and to be prepared for the Lord's arrival. Well, we've spent all this time studying about how Jesus has come and, and the, the way that Jesus had come, but we haven't really been introduced into Jesus. Have you noticed that? We've been through uh, nearly all of three chapters and we haven't read about the life of Jesus yet. Well, finally we get to the life of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be studying uh, beginning this morning is Jesus comes onto the scene and we're going to see how he is in fact greater than John. Uh, he is also glorified by God and he is faithful as he enters into the wilderness. And that's going to be uh, what we see him doing as he comes onto the scene. First of all, let's start by reading verse uh, 13 through 15. And see how Jesus collides with John the Baptist. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he consented. John consented to the baptism. So we see Jesus comes to John in the wilderness to be baptized by him. So John is, has been out preaching and teaching other people that the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus shows up and he wants to be baptized by John. And notice the response of John here. John would have prevented him. John says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be baptizing you, Jesus. He said no to the Pharisees and to the scribes because they didn't have hearts that showed repentance inside of them. Why then does he now say no to Jesus? Well, Jesus has nothing to repent of. <laughs> I don't really know how John understood that, 
But John looks at Jesus and he says, I, I'm not going to be baptizing you. I, I, can't, I can't do this. You can't uh, let me baptize you. He says, instead, I need to be baptized by you. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, we saw that John said, uh, there's one coming who's greater than, than I am, whose sandal I'm not worthy to strap, I'm not worthy to carry. And that's the picture of complete humility. Even Hebrew slaves were not allowed to carry the sandals of, of their masters. Uh, only the Gentile slaves were allowed to carry the sandals, the filthiest part of the person. And, and he says, I'm not worthy to even carry a sandal. And then he says, one's coming who's greater than I am, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and will baptize with fire. The fire part we talked about seems like it's more judgment, and the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit seems like it's the blessing. So here's John saying, I need your baptism, Jesus. I need the blessings that you have come to bring me. Why would I baptize you when you have come to give the baptism that I'm looking for, that all Israel is looking for? Well, we think about that, and we kind of wonder, why does Jesus want John to baptize him? What's the point? I mean, he's, he's, he's not sinned. He has, not he has nothing to repent of. This is a baptism, confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, to be forgiven of your sins. Why would Jesus come to John to be baptized? Well, he says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus doesn't say, oh no, I've got some sin in my life that I need to have removed in order to go into this mission. That's not what he says. He says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Even Jesus who is sinless, who, who has done nothing, is willing to submit to baptism because the prophet of God has said to Israel, you must come now and repent and be baptized. This is the, the command of God's prophet. And Jesus is, imagine Jesus saying, oh, I don't need to do that, or I'm not going to do that because I'm sinless. I mean, he's not going to rebel against God's prophet. That would be sin. <laughs> he's not going to rebel against the word of God. He's submitting to God's word. And, repent, and not repenting, but still submitting to the form of baptism. And something amazing happens as he's baptized. Look with me at verse 16. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So here the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends like a dove on Jesus. Can you imagine what that would look like if you were there? The heavens open. I, I mean, we're trying to picture this. A lot of images have the clouds parting. But I imagine more than that. I imagine the living creatures standing before the throne of God. And there comes the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus. That's what I imagine. I don't know. It doesn't say clearly what, what all that means. But... The heavens were open to him, and then from the heavens comes this voice saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What a statement is being made in the very first act of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, John is there. He baptized him. He rose him up from the waters. There may be others around. 
And they all witnessed this. John's gospel, John the Apostle's gospel says that they witnessed this. They saw this happening and they know that the Messiah is here. The one who is greater than John is here. But think about these words from God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What is God doing in this text? He's he's attesting to Jesus' righteousness, to Jesus' greatness. Not that he needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but that he is the one who is submitting to God's will perfectly. He is the one who God loves, the the beloved Son. And that picture is taking us to Psalm 2, which was read before the sermon. As, As David is pointing out that God has told him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That the the anointed one, the Messiah, is considered to be the son of God. Son of God is not a new term in the New Testament. It is throughout the Old Testament referring to the one who pleases God. But also, that, that phrase that's in there, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, is referring to the suffering servant of Isaiah. We've been seeing Isaiah throughout Matthew. Matthew goes back to the prophet Isaiah over and over again to kind of help us see this is the man that God prophesied, that God foretold, who has come. And, and in, in Isaiah 42, that's very much what's going on. The, it says, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. Wow. You know, the picture in Isaiah 42 is that the Lord delights in him and he has set his spirit upon him and he is going to bring about the justice that that we need. And he's not going to be uh, commanding authority and breaking and, and, and coming in like a wrecking ball, just messing everybody up. He's going to be gentle and lowly and caring and bring about the justice and the law that we've been waiting for, the, co- the covenant that we have been waiting for. So God is telling us Jesus is the guy that we've always been looking for. But then something very odd takes place as we go into the next chapter. Immediately after Jesus rises up out of baptism and is is labeled the beloved son. Read with me chapter 4 verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels were ministering to him. Notice what happens immediately after he comes out of the waters of baptism. The text tells us that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. God has led him into the temptation that he's about to go through. God has brought him to it. Now we might think about that and say, why would God take his beloved son? He loves Jesus. Why would he put him in a situation of pain and suffering? Why would he allow him to go 40 days and 40 nights and be hungry? We don't love our children, so we put them out in the wilderness and, and let them survive without us for 40 days and 40 nights. Why does God do this? Well, we remember that God did the same thing to Israel, didn't he? Throughout all this, we've kind of seen the similarities between Jesus' life and Israel. Remember, he, was, uh, he escaped to Egypt, and then he was called out of Egypt and brought back into the promised land. And now what's he doing? He's going into the wilderness. Israel was, was in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says in Deuteronomy 8 why God led them into the wilderness. It was an 11-day journey into the promised land. An 11-day journey. Why did God lead them into the wilderness instead? Deuteronomy 8 tells us why. Deuteronomy 8, 1 and 2. The whole commandment that I command you today, shall, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Listen to this. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God led his people into the wilderness to show that they had the wrong heart, that their heart did not really love the Lord, that they were not willing to be faithful, to keep all the commandments that the Lord had given them, that they were weak and that they were, they were willing to make all kinds of compromises and changes in their lives in order to survive, and that they were unloving toward God. They loved themselves more than they loved God. And now he's sending Jesus out into the wilderness to show everyone what is in the heart of this Son, the beloved Son, that He is going to enter the wilderness to be tested to go through the same suffering and testing that Israel went to. He's going to go through that as well. God allowed Him to do that, to show what was in His heart, so that we can understand Jesus on a deeper level. Look at each of these tests that He goes through. In the first test, the devil uh, sees him. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones 
to become loaves of bread. Satan sees him after 40 days and 40 nights. He knows he's hungry. He sees him. Maybe Jesus has a thought uh, after 40 days and 40 nights. You know, I'm kind of hungry right now. (laughs) And he comes to him and he says, if you're the son of God, you have the spirit of God on you. You have the will of God at your command. You can command these stones and they can become bread. Give those powers a whirl. Help yourself in this situation. You're the Lord's beloved son. He surely wouldn't want you to die out here in the wilderness. He's got great plans for you. You have to save yourself. You have to do this for yourself, Jesus. Turn these stones into bread so that you can just survive, so that you can fulfill your mission. How do we feel when things get difficult in our lives? How many of us are tempted to turn stones into bread every day? That's not really what we do. I mean, if we had the power of Jesus, we'd just gone 40 days, 40 nights without food or drink. I'm turning that stone into a steak. (laughs) I'm not turning it into bread. I'm turning it into something yummy, you know. I'm going to turn it into a Big Mac. I'm going to turn it into something that I'm going to just gobble right. Oh, it's going to be good. I might have done that the whole time I was out in the wilderness. Honestly, I'd have done it before 40 days. How focused are we on our physical circumstances? Isn't it easy for us to do what we want when things aren't going our way and somehow justify it because we need it? Because we have to have this in order to survive, in order for things to go easily for us. We need this this physical thing. We need this to, to be happy in this life. Satan tempts us all the time to distrust the providential care of God, and go after the physical things that are in this life. We're working more hours than we need to work. We're sacrificing our families. We're, we're, we're submitting to all the idolatry around us, the entertainment around us to fulfill us, to make us feel full and content. We do all these physical things, and we're so focused on the physical, completely forgetting the spiritual things are more important. And what does Jesus say in response? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't need the physical. We need the spiritual to live. We need the spiritual to live. We justify missing out on our Bible study time uh, every day. We miss out on our prayer time every day. Why? Because we need our couch potato time. We need our uh, friend time. We need our fun time. But Jesus needs the Word of God to survive. We do too. Satan tempts us every day to set aside the spiritual and focus our minds and our hearts on the physical things that are around us. Jesus did not fall to this temptation. The next temptation of Satan, we see that Satan has seen Jesus is is going to love God, that he's going to uh, put the spiritual things before the physical, that he loves the Lord his God. Okay, that's great, Jesus. You love God. Now listen to what he says. 
He takes him to the top of the temple, the holy city, and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here Satan pulls out Psalm 91. And this is a psalm that says that the one whom the Lord loves, He's going to take care of, even though thousands around you will fall. Tens of thousands around you will fall. You will not fall. God is with you. God loves you. And and here's Satan saying, you've shown you love God. Now let's see if God loves you. You need to know whether or not God loves you. Why don't you throw yourself off of this temple to test to see if God really loves you. You don't know for sure whether He loves you unless He's willing to save you in this way. How common is this in our society? Tons of people preach and teach the health and wealth gospel of, you know, you just give it all. We're going to pass around these collection plates and you just give the Lord everything. You just take this great risk and He's going to bless you and you're going to have this great life and He's going to show you how much He loves you. Everything's going to go great for you. Sometimes we want to believe these things. We're going through suffering. We're going through hard times. And, and, and we just think that we're praying all these prayers to God. And God, I don't know if you love me or not. But if you answer this prayer, then I will know that you love me. If you end this suffering, I'll know you love me. End it. Please, end it. We do the same things that Satan is tempting Jesus to do. Satan uses Scripture to encourage Jesus to do this, but Jesus responds, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is not going to create a situation or a scenario where uh, He's testing the love of God. And He doesn't make His trust, His love, conditional upon whether whether or not God saves Him from something that is going on. He has determined in His mind that He loves God regardless of what some test would reveal. Regardless of what happens to him in his life, Jesus loves God and he's willing to wait for God to deliver him, for God to give him the promises that he has made. He's not going to force God's hand. He's going to accept the will of God for what it is, to trust God, not because of him giving him what he wants at that exact moment. In 1 Samuel 4, uh, we get an instance of, I- of Israel uh, going up against uh, the... Uh, or, I'm on the wrong. Let me get the right illustration. Yes. Uh, 1 Samuel 4, that's right. Uh, Israel's going up against the Philistines, and they think we're losing. I know what we can do. Let's get the ark of God, and let's bring it into the battle with us. And then surely God's going to show us He loves us because He's right here with us. We know He's with us. And what happens? Philistines steal the ark. (laughs) That didn't work out, did it? (laughs) They had this great plan to, to force God's hand, to get God to give them what they want. And they lose the ark. God is not a genie in a bottle. 
Trusting Him means we believe His Word. We believe His promises made to us. And we, we know He will deliver them in His own time. Maybe that we go through tremendous suffering in this life. But we always know God is faithful in delivering His promises. We don't need some test. That test just shows a lack of faith. We know He will deliver what He has promised. The third test that, that Satan made against Jesus is in verses 8 through uh, 9. He takes him, so first of all, he's out in the wilderness, he offers him bread. Then he takes him to the top of the temple and tells him cast himself down. Now he takes him even higher. He takes him to another level. This is at the top of a very high mountain. And he sees all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. I can't imagine what that would be like at that time when they don't have TV screens that can show them, here's this country, here's this country, here's this country. He's seeing all this that no man has seen all at one time. It's not even possible. He sees it all. And Satan shows it all to him and he says, all of this I will give to you and their glory is included in that. All the kingdoms of the earth, all of their glory I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. Now this sounds pretty good if you're having lived 30 years as a nobody from nowhere. You're given an opportunity to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, that's the whole purpose that Jesus came to the earth, right? He came in order to, uh, to conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. He came to become the king of kings and the lord of lords. So Satan's offering him the very thing he came here for. He's giving him the end that he wants. The only thing he has to do is just compromise the means. All he has to do is just change the way that he receives it. Now Satan knows. By doing this, he will avoid all the suffering Satan's about to put on him. He's offering to, to remove all the suffering of Jesus' life. You can go from a nobody to something and it's free. All you got to do is worship me. It's free. And what about all those free things that were offered? How do those turn out for us? Uh, you know, you learn from that stuff, right? As you're younger, you, you buy into it and you learn what's free is not really free. How often do we seek blessings for ourselves while compromising what is right in order to avoid sufferings? When we're at work, we know that we can take this little shortcut right here and that'll get us a little bit further to where we want to be. And, and we know maybe that that shortcut's not going to have that bad of consequences. It's just a little dishonesty here. And if, if somebody finds out, we just say, oh, it's my mistake. No big deal. We'll just take this little shortcut. And we think, oh, look at this. At the end, I'm going to be the boss and I'm going to have influence over other people. I'll have a better ability to serve God. And I'll have more money to serve God. I'll have more to give God. All I got to do is just you know, compromise a little bit in this, in this area. And then I can, I can offer God the best. We're compromising. The truth is, though, it won't work out. The ends do not justify the means. The truth is, whenever we're doing all of that, 
we're really focusing more on ourselves than we are on God. We're much more focused on the benefits it's going to get me as I, as I get ahead. Maybe it's something not, not at work. Maybe it's in our family. Maybe we take a shortcut with our family and we try to, to work hard at work and we kind of skip over our family thinking we'll, pay, we'll get more money and we'll get more time later and we'll just do this right now and then that'll work out. Or, or maybe we're, we're doing it at school and cheating or something to get where we want to go. The ends justify the means, don't they? Jesus has a different perspective. Jesus not only refuses Satan, but he commands him, get away from me. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is not about glorifying himself. He could have had all this glory and all this wonder and this kingdom and being the king of kings and lord of lords right then and there, but that's not his focus. That's not his heart's desire. Instead, he cares more about worshiping and serving his God than he cares about advancing in life. The temporary advancement that he might have gone through by giving into this temptation is not worth giving up on his relationship with God. He understands it's just not worth it. I mean, really, think about all these little compromises we're willing to make. Are they worth giving up the relationship we have with our Creator, with our God who loves us, who we love? Do we really love Him more than we love ourselves? Satan is ultimately asking Jesus to glorify himself over glorifying God. He's asking Jesus, put yourself first. Because God's not looking out for you. Look at you. You're, you're nothing. You're, from no, you're nobody from nowhere. You're not going to have anything, Jesus, unless I give it to you. Unless you make this compromise, it's never going to happen. But Jesus endures tremendous suffering to glorify God. And in the end, He is receiving greater glory than any of us could ever even imagine. We look at this whole situation, this whole scenario and everything that's going on, and we, we think about what does all of this mean? Why is Matthew including this the way that he is? Well, what we see in Jesus as we're reading through this text that's, that's just permeating, coming out of the text at us, is Jesus is the King that we need, the King that we never knew could ever exist. He's greater than John. He's greater than David. He's greater than Daniel. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Job. He's greater than the greatest of men. He's able to do what none of us can do. And we needed Him to come and show us the way. Jesus has that heart that loves God more than anything else. And He shows us finally what that looks like. We see a glimpse of it in David, but then He turns to Himself and He's imperfect. But Jesus is perfect. He endures all of this and at the end we see the devil leaves Him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to Him. God takes care of Him. We needed Jesus to come to, to show us 
the the perfection that He offers, the ability that He has to overcome the ultimate enemy that we face. And to see that God loves Him even as He is in His worst situation. But more than that, if Jesus did not resist these temptations, He would not become the perfect sacrifice that we need. Jesus makes up for our imperfections by enduring all of this. You see, we need a lamb perfect, without spot, without blemish, sinless, to pay the sins, to pay the debt that is owed by the sins of all mankind. There is nothing as good as Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood comes from the perfect, innocent man who lived to sacrifice Himself for us. And this helps us in our lives. As we're thinking about what this means and we're trying to understand how we're going to take something away from this besides just feeling horrible, right? I mean, we read this and we're like, yeah, you showed me, Jesus, I'm a horrible failure. I I fail to every sin, every temptation. In some way or some form, I'm falling to this. And Jesus comes and He shows us the way. And He shows us that He can do it. And He shows us that He can make it possible for us to do it as well. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, I want want you to hear what this says. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember propitiation from last week. He became the mercy seat. He became the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now we see and understand our path ahead. As Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, it wasn't this easy life of blessing from God. It was a time of suffering and enduring tremendous trial. That's what Israel went through, and they failed. Brethren, that's what we go through. We go through that trial, that temptation, that testing. After we come out of the waters of baptism, we endure great testing and and we need to see the love that Jesus has shown for God and develop that love, that heart in ourselves when we're tested. Because if we fall, if we go back to living a life that's pursuing the desires of our own heart, that's pursuing the exaltation of ourselves then there no longer remains hope for us. If we deny Him, He will deny us. We just studied that. 1 Corinthians 10, though, tells us no temptation has overtaken you, that God is not providing the way of escape. No temptation has overtaken us that is uncommon to man. With the temptation, He provides us a way of escape. What do we need to endure temptations? We need a heart that loves the Lord our God more than we love ourselves, more than we love the things of this earth, that's willing to put our trust in God when things get hard and willing to wait on Him. Does God love you? Absolutely, He loves you. 
question is, do we love Him? Will we put our trust in Him? Becoming a child of God is not the easy path. Satan comes at us more after we come out of the waters of baptism. But it's the path that's worth it. Because God will ultimately show us His love at the end, and He will provide us with a glory beyond compare, beyond what we deserve, beyond what we can imagine, if we just remain faithful, loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our brethren as ourselves. Have you put on Christ and received the atoning sacrifice that He offers you? Are you living faithfully for Him? I hope you are. And I hope that if there's anything we can do this morning to help you in your walk, that you'll let us know. Uh, We'd love to help you in any way we can. Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.